Max Levchin was 16 years old when his family left the former Soviet Union for a fresh start in the United States. But he had already started learning computer programming, thanks to his mother's job. Shortly after college, he moved out to Silicon Valley and co-founded a company. You might have heard of it. PayPal. PayPal's success made Levchin rich, but it also did something else. It became one of the best breeding grounds for talent ever. PayPal alumni founded LinkedIn, Tesla, Yelp, YouTube, to name a few. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This week, I talked to Max Levchin about how he's still disrupting the financial establishment with his new company, Affirm, his path to prominence in tech, and his advice for up-and-coming creators. Here's Max Levchin. You had four failed startups in three years during college? Yep. That's amazing. I think it's pretty uh, standard track record for, for most entrepreneurs, I think. Just occasionally have a breakout, which I got lucky with. Yeah, but I mean, maybe it has to do with how much you had on the line, though you said you did rack up some credit card debt at times in the process. Yep. But a lot of people can't survive one or two um, over the span of five years, much less four in three. What is it either about the velocity, the hunger you had at the time. How do you power through that? I think that's sort of the differentiating factor between entrepreneurs and not entrepreneurs. I think it's superficial, it's a lot of fun to start a company. It actually is a lot of fun. The very early days are really amazing. You kind of run around, you have this purpose, you feel like everyone counts. And then reality sets in, you realize that you don't have enough money, they don't have experience, you have to find a team, but you don't want to spend too much money. So it, it becomes very rapidly an exercise in, well, can I sustain that internal momentum? And then if and fairly often when you hit a wall, that's when the sort of the moment comes where, I mean, one of the things that I, I get asked all the time is, how do you know when to throw in the towel? When, when is your startup just not getting traction, you're not out of money, your team is still there, but how do you know when to quit? And it's actually, that's kind of a high-class problem. <laughs> really? My, my failures in the early days were sort of like, we're out of money, <laughs> no more cash left, done. So there's and no question, really. It's, it's not really a question. It's a matter of like, okay, well, we have failed. Yeah. And so then you like, go to the office, with head you know, hung low and everything. And so that's the crucial moment. You kind of go like, well, do I want to do this again, or am I done? And I actually remember vividly, one of my earliest co-conspirators sort of walked in the office one day, we actually hadn't failed yet, and he just broke down and there was kind of a between sobs and words, he essentially said, I can't do this. The, the stress of running a startup, and we were already kind of on our way down, so it was clear where, where we're headed, but like, I, I can't do it, I, I gotta leave, and he just kind of picked his stuff up and left. And I didn't really figure out what he felt until we actually properly failed, but that day I was like, what do I want? What's the sort of an inner purpose? You know, has it gone? What do I want to do with myself? I'm like, basically, I can't wait to do it again. Like, <laughs> I have to do this. And so after that, it, I, I never suffered from this notion of like, oh, you know, gosh, do I do this again or not? It was very much a try again. It's like, yeah. this is what I am. That, that, this is what exactly. I do. So I'm going to roll that boulder up the hill and eventually it's going to stay. Exactly. That, it, I think I'm very lucky in that sense. I, I've never had a moment's doubt that one day it'll work out and I just have to keep trying. PayPal. I'm sure you've told the story many times, but a lot of people haven't heard it. 
How did that initially come together? The idea behind what PayPal actually was changed several times. What was the first idea and how did it come together? So Peter Thiel and I had a, what turned out to be a fateful breakfast at a sadly now closed restaurant in Palo Alto where I just moved to Silicon Valley from University of Illinois and met this guy pretty randomly. These two startup ideas I'm going to pitch both of you on and you tell me which one is better. The year was? This is 1998. This is uh, late July 98. And this is the time when if you met somebody randomly in Palo Alto, you pitched each other startup ideas. Pretty much. Yeah. It was <laughs> like the form of nerd courtship. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of have this idea and this idea. And one idea was something like a competitive intelligence agency for the web, which at the time, in 98, the web was small enough where you could actually just kind of scan for advertisement and say, here's what your competitors are doing online. Now I hear it's a big business, but back, back <laughs> then it actually made no sense. And the other one was I did the cryptographic uh, research in college. So before crypto was about currencies, it was just, in my mind, still is about math and secret codes and breaking them and making them. And so that, that's what I wanted to do one day. And so I was between one dead startup and I thought maybe it would be another. So I said, hey, Peter, I have this competitive intelligence idea and this other add cryptography to handheld devices, which at the time meant Palm Pilot. So right. no communications, no nothing, just a thing in your hand that you can take notes on. And for whatever strange reason, he said, oh, that business idea with competitive intelligence and selling information, that's bogus. Tell me more about this cryptography added to handheld devices. And that was the very original thing that caught his mind and was bubbling up in mine. And we started the company, or initially he said, I will invest. And then over the next couple of months, I sort of made it my mission to convince him to actually start it with me. In December of 98, he finally sort of relented and said, fine, I'll put my investment career on hold, go be a co-founder with you. And by then, we'd already figured out that just building sort of this abstract notion of cryptographically secure handheld devices with no communications and therefore no actual need for security <laughs> may or may not be useful. But we've been iterating on this notion of, well, what if you add security to information that is stored on your handheld devices? Well, what if that information is financial information? And then what if we started encrypting IOUs and giving each other information about who owns, owes whom what? And one last leap was, well, instead of sending around IOUs, let's just send money. And then <laughs> the final blow, I, I really wanted to work on handheld devices. And Paul Pilot was kind of quintessential to this idea. And then we built a demo that didn't require a handheld device, just go on the web and try it. And that grew far faster than the handheld device version. <laughs> so it took me about a year to let go of my handheld dream, but uh, that's what PayPal became. Why Peter Thiel? I'm sure you met a lot of people when you first moved out. I mean, young guy, fresh out of college, nerd. You're in nerd heaven, right? Uh, on the Absolutely. peninsula in the Bay Area. What stood out about this guy? So there are two things about Peter that were true then and still true now. Um, he is incredibly bright, and he has sort of an intensity about his intellect that is really captivating, where you talk to him, he's fundamentally excited about ideas. And so when you sit down and talk to him about anything, it like doesn't matter whether it's biosciences or conquest of Mars or payments, he gets extremely engaged. And he is very smart, and so you feel like 
the depth of the conversation has just gone several notches up. So it's exciting to talk to somebody that smart who is that interested to talk to you. Then as you get to know him a little bit more, he has this inherent ability, which I think comes from sort of the first point, to bring out your best capabilities. So as an engineer, I love solving problems. So you know, bring me a hard challenge, I'm gonna go at it. And the reason we made such a great co-founding team, the reason I think that PayPal succeeded in many ways was because Peter has this ability, as he engages with you and your brain, to dig deeper into what you can do. Like, here's a really hard problem, can you solve it? Can we solve it together? Can we make it even more compelling, even better, even more interesting solution? And so, I'm not sure he's ever taken a management class in his life because he occasionally can be all kinds of challenging to work with, but he's brilliant at extracting the very best work from the people that he surrounds himself with. And so, as soon as I met him, I was like, this guy, I know he will inspire people to, to follow him into battle. And so I, I was very excited to do something with him. PayPal, huge success, not only in the company itself, but in, in what probably says more about what it was in the number of entrepreneurial efforts spun out by the people who were there. And you can look at YouTube, you can look at Yelp, you can look at LinkedIn, you can look at Tesla. I mean, I'm talking about uh, Reid Hoffman, Elon Musk, um, all, all kinds of people coming out of that company. Um, let's talk about what you're working on now. First, Affirm, because you're a CEO there. You've uh, launched some new features heading into the holiday season. Here's a company that's approaching loans in a different way and kind of trying to disrupt the, the credit card uh, system that people are paying so much for. Why is this important for the age that we're in right now? And, and how much has risk started to increase as interest rates have started creeping up for you? Right. Um, so, first of all, the impetus for a firm and sort of why, why that now? I think during PayPal, we've looked at the credit card world as an enabler to what we're doing. So we were trying to create a payment infrastructure for the web. Credit cards were there providing funds. And I never really stopped to think too deeply, well, where does the money come from? Who makes money when? Who benefits? 20 years later, almost. Wow. Kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, it's 20 years now, but we started a company a few years ago. I sort of pretty randomly started thinking, well, how do, how do the economics of credit cards really work? And I dug into it, and a bunch of interesting things emerged. Most important finding was that the next generation that is now, that is millennials and post-millennials, are actively opting out of credit cards. They don't trust them. They don't believe that credit cards and the banks that create them are on their side. And it's sort of true. If you, I mean, anytime you receive, receive a letter that has that much fine print on the back, you've got to believe there's something in there that they don't want you to know. Have we ever really thought that credit cards were on our side? I mean, I've always thought of it as try to, try to pay it off as quickly as possible. It's a convenience, but it'll get you if you fall in love. Right. And so why is it the case that U.S. consumer credit is on the order of a trillion dollars? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that you kind of want out of, but you need to use, it's a great user interface. I mean, you chip your card in and yeah. you're done, walk away, pay for it later. It's a wonderful way of kind of not thinking about hard questions about money. And so, so here, here's some confirmation maybe of what, what they're really after. 40% of, um, very large percentage of banks derive about half their, um, their profit from late fees. So that alone should give you a sense that when they tell you, hey, please pay your bills on time, 
the underlying reality is actually, well, maybe not so on time. Like you should definitely pay them because if you default, if you don't pay your bills, then we'll lose money. But if you pay them all the time on time and you don't revolve, don't carry a large balance, we'll make less money. So there's an inherent incentive misalignment between credit card makers and credit card users, which is rare because most of the time when you think of a manufacturer and a consumer or a, a seller and a buyer, they're generally aligned. They have something great and they want the other person to benefit from it and to have it. And so the idea behind a firm was very simple. What if we build a financial instrument, which is a fancy words for a thing that allows you to buy things, where the incentives were aligned, where the creator of the financial instrument and the user of the financial instrument were actually on the same page at all times, where you wouldn't make money when people forget to pay their bills, where you wouldn't benefit when you gave somebody more money that they could spend responsibly, and uh, just go from there. So that's what we built uh, six years ago. The product has taken off like wildfire, largely among young people, because one, it's super easy to understand. It is simple interest. So one of the things that's really complicated about credit cards is interest compounds into principal. So every night, whatever it is that you paid in principal the day before is now added to your principal. So the cost of money grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. Humans are not really designed to model exponential functions in their brain. They really understand lines a lot better. So we changed our model to be a linear function. Um, we don't charge fees of any kind, including don't charge late fees, which is kind of a controversial idea because, well, what's the stick? You know, the carrot is we're very nice. The stick is if you don't pay on time. And I think the problem with late fees is not that they don't work as a stick. They do, and it, there's, a, there's a value in that. But the second you start charging them, you are fundamentally misaligning yourself with the customer. Right, because you, then you, you want them to be a little late. Yeah, be a little bit late. In, in fact, I'll, I'll increase the late fees a little bit because that's a 100% gross margin increase in value to me. Mm. And so one day I'll figure out some clever trick to create a sort of a you know, slap on a wrist for not paying on time and not be motivated to grab more of that. But until we do that, I'd rather not charge late fees and stay a completely... Uh, honest relationship with my customers. So I know that startups are often understandably tight-lipped about exactly what their growth rate is, how well they're doing. A firm almost sounds too good to be true to the point where, you know, the incentives are aligned, you're not charging late fees. That scares me. I've been, you know, I've been in the business a while. I, I get a little cynical. How well are you doing? Is this, is this really going to work long term? I think the, 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 the really, or? so we've doubled or better every year of our existence mm. from a small base, of course, but uh, at this point we're well into billions of money lent. So this is a real lending operation. You can't be lending a billion or two or three a year and sort of keep it as a house of cards. So it's, it's, right. a, it's a fairly robust business in that sense. Uh, but if I were to, if I were in your seat sort of grilling this overconfident CEO, I would say, well, but there hasn't been a recession. Well, let's see what happens to you guys when the economy starts hitting rock bottom. Um, and that would be the correct question to ask. So the, the answer within the extent of uh, what, what's known now is that the team we've built, the experience we've all had going back 20 years, a lot of us came from PayPal and sort of lived through 08 in, in various roles. We know risk management. We know how to underwrite. Um, we take ourselves through the same exact rigors that large regulated banks do. So we do our own stress testing and have our own credit committee meetings and sort of look at risk management very, very seriously. That's a good fire drill. We'll find out 
just how well we are prepared as the economy starts really turning. But uh, so far, so good. We've, we've grown really, really well. We have millions and millions of customers. Our net promoter score is E3, which for financial services companies, I think... Uh, and for those who aren't familiar, a net promoter score is basically when you ask people, would you recommend this exactly. to a friend? Which is a better indicator than just asking people, you do you happy? like it or not? Yeah, right. right, exactly, exactly. And it's a, it's a fairly draconian score, too. If uh, you score six or lower, if I remember correctly, you get points taken off. So it's not a score that you just get pluses every time somebody says yes. Somebody says, nah, let's go from one to 10. It's more of a six. The, the score gets lowered. So our, ours is quite high. I believe it is the highest in financial services. Um, most banks that make credit cards enjoy net promoter scores in the ones and twos, literally. Not, not in the tens, like one or two. Mm -hmm. So we're full 80 points above them. Some are negative, but... Uh, Again, we'll, you know, ask me again after the next recession recovers, then we'll really know we stood the test of time. Why are you still starting stuff, funding stuff? I mean, we talked about when you were in college, um, four startups in three years, they failed. You felt like this is what I am. But you sold Slide to Google, PayPal worked out. You don't have to do this anymore, not in an operational role. Mm -hmm. So what keeps you doing it? Just love it. Like, <laughs> so there's not really a better answer. Um, every time one of my projects ends successfully or or not, um, since PayPal, I have both been recruited by and contemplated seriously going over to the dark side. That is sort of not operating, basically investing or being an operating partner somewhere. I expected you to, when you said the dark side. I expected you to say a big established company. No, um, that's pretty unlikely to happen, although... Too dark. <laughs> no, 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 it's actually, it's lack of control. Uh, I, one, of the, one of the sort of uh, difficulties of being an entrepreneur, especially a long time one with reasonable amount of success, is to get used to calling the shots. So you really want to be the guy in control. And one of the things that I learned during the eBay acquisition, so as, as we got acquired, eBay actually made it no bones about the fact that they're completely okay with the management team leaving. And at the time, it seemed to be like a terrible miscalculation. Like, look, we have these, a bunch of young, smart, aggressive, ready-to-go execs, and yet eBay team was like, no, 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 it's, it's fine, you can go. And we did, and at the time, it seemed like a terrible mistake. But in retrospect, I understand why. They knew how the movie ends. You become fidgety. You can't really not be in control after you have been in control for so long. So, but having said that, for example, slide that ended up at Google, if you're gonna work for a large company in America, that's one great company to work for. So I, I have no, nothing bad to say about my experience there. But the dark side, at least in Silicon Valley lingo, is traditionally <laughs> the investment side. And uh, I contemplated a career in venture and I invest plenty. Um, still sort of as an angel and I really enjoy the mentoring part that comes with it. But there's nothing that replaces that sort of first office, figuring out who's gonna sit where, sort of how to, uh, how do you motivate people to go to battle every day? How do you explain your screw-ups? How do you sort of deal with the... I mean, even the nasty parts are still fun because that, that's when the bonds are really forged in the teams. And uh, a firm is especially cool because it's sort of the Silicon Valley answer to Wall Street. One of the things that's really interesting about Silicon Valley is and in, in a current sort of a tech backlash notwithstanding, I think we still have a near monopoly on amazing things, like truly amazing things to work on. If you're a young person straight out of college or straight out of you know, first job, you're coming in Silicon Valley 
the opportunities are not just wow, make a lot of money, change the world. They're very tangible. Like let's build a, a flying car. A lot of people car. don't get this about Silicon Valley. But I lived out there for 14 years from late 99 until about five years ago. And there's always been this talk about, oh, they're building another Silicon Valley over here or over there, or you know, they've got this piece, uh, the, the investors and, and that piece, uh, the, the university system, right? So they can build a Silicon right. Valley. But exactly how many things it takes to create that environment from the weather and the mythology and the higher education system and the investors and the large existing companies that are constantly spinning out talent that want to start their own thing. And then just the convergence of immigrants who feel welcome. There is nobody who's like old money Silicon Valley right. that, that runs the place. I mean, that's really hard to replicate, right? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I think it's very, very slowly shifting. But it really is kind of the, the layers of tree growth, to think of a metaphor, that, that really exactly what you said, that you have these overlapping generations of people that build great companies, become big companies, go into big companies through acquisition, spin out teams that look back and say, I want to be just like that person who recruited me, who shaped me, who mentored me. And of course, that person is ready to invest because they know exactly what that story looks like. And so the many overlapping layers of Silicon Valley, including the mythology where people retell these amazing stories that shape, you know, broke or made a company, I think you know, any number of places in the world could eventually get there. But Silicon Valley is, call it, 70 years old. And that's, you know, five, ten generations of people that have that shared history. Mm that's very, very hard to replicate. I think it's more likely there'll be an answer to Silicon Valley somewhere where it's being built and built as such right now, 100 years from now, than 10 years from now, assuming it's successful. Um, uh, we were talking earlier, you are, I think, the fourth or fifth entrepreneur who was born in the Soviet Union, came to the US, uh, and, and has, has made good, um, that I've had on Fort Knox. Uh, Kirill Tatarnov, uh, Vlad Shmunis, um, Rob Bernstein, uh, just, and, and there's probably another one I'm forgetting. Um, but talk about your origins. What are your earliest memories before, as a teenager, about 16 years old, moving to the US? I have uh, vivid memories of uh, the old country. I was, I was uh, old enough to remember. I was born on Lenin Street. I'll give you a Lennon Street. Lennon Street, number 66, a uh, kind of a pasty yellow building to uh, keep it uh, PG as far as <laughs> colors go. Um, and um, it's a five-story building on a corner of a fairly nice part of Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, was at the time capital of the Ukrainian Republic under the Soviet rule. Um, my parents were engineers, my grandparents were scientists, sort of grew up in a family that basically elevated science and education to the highest possible pedestal. It was very important for my parents and my grandparents that I go get a, at least one degree, more would be preferable. <laughs> uh, and then went to uh, one of these tracked programs for sort of smarter kids. Um, the big sort of a explosive literally point of my childhood was a sort of punctuation of the Chernobyl power station blowing up. Wow. Um, so 90 we were, miles away. 
about 90 miles north of uh, where I lived, there was a real-life nuclear accident. Uh, and um, my mom basically threw me and my brother on a train and sent us down south. Um, actually, completely uh, apropos nothing, um, Northern California is experiencing a, basically as close as we've ever gotten to a natural disaster with the crazy fires up north. My mom called me and said, do you remember when uh, we uh, put you guys on a train to go to Crimea to get out of Kiev during the, uh, the Chernobyl accident? I said, yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as bad <laughs> in San Francisco, but the, the memory is very vivid. Um, and uh, I spent a year and a half away from the capital, sort of on the, on the periphery of Ukraine, which is now, of course, occupied by Russia. And um, kind of roughly around that time, my parents told me, kind of not, not directly get used to moving, but so, you know, this may not be the last stop in our travels. We're going to try to leave the country permanently. And so I was sort of in my early teens when I found out that they were trying to find a way to leave the Soviet Union in part because they felt that the economy was falling apart, in part because I was getting towards the um, mandatory um, draft age. And mm. so once you're drafted, you can't leave. And uh, this was still when the Afghanistan war was very much a thing for the old country. And uh, a lot of young kids would go there and not come back. Yeah. So they were very focused on getting us out of there. And then uh, in... 89 or maybe early 90 we got permission to enter the u.s and sort of started slowly unraveling all of our uh, soviet linkages and then mid-july tend to move in july because i flew from moscow to chicago in july of 91 and then drove from <laughs> university of illinois at champaign urbana to uh palo alto in july of 98. yeah so the family of five moves to the U.S. with $600 between you. That's right. Uh, and, and your parents are doing what? Well, on day one, nothing. Uh, my dad basically struggled to figure himself out in this country. Um, he spent a lot of time, he, he was a writer, um, and so he eventually figured out a job at the Northwestern Library, helping them write book, um, reviews and manage their uh, Russian and Slavic language collection. So mm. it was uh, never nearly, I think, what he had hoped to do in the U.S., but at least he had purpose. My mom, on the other hand, who had a um, physics degree and was already a software engineer. So the reason I got into programming is my mom was ordered by her research institution to learn how to program <laughs> because <laughs> that was the way things went. And I was helping her. So by the time we got to the U.S. So this was uh, before sh you guys moved to the U.S. Yeah. So she was, she worked for a lab yeah. in some research facility fairly close to our house, actually, or apartment in Kiev. And then one day they said, "Here, this thing here is called a computer. Learn how to use it. Write software." And as things went in Soviet Union, she said, "Okay, I guess I have to." <laughs> and like a one kind of a poorly a Xeroxed book, which turned out to be bootleg translation of. Um, Niklaus Wirth's um, classic um, um, algorithms plus data structures equals programming, the <laughs> classic text on computer science from the early 80s, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It was very poorly translated, but it was enough. And so my mom and I were reading it to each other out loud and learning Pascal. And so by the time we landed in the US, she had a fairly good idea of how to write Pascal programs. And, and uh, so did you. So did I. 
Uh, I went on to study computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and uh, she, her English was really not very good, so she spent, I think, five or six years babysitting, which was a giant blow to her ego, and she definitely had to uh, hold her breath or hold her um, sense of self-worth in check. And then as she sort of built up the confidence to uh, actually go interview for programming jobs, she got one, and then she literally just retired uh, a couple of years ago or two years ago, where she spent the, the, the following 25 years writing software. She was a wow. very successful uh, software engineer after a few years of babysitting. What did that period between uh, moving and getting to U of I do for your appetite for instability? Because it seems like, I mean, you're seeing your parents, clearly capable people, highly educated people, thrust into this environment where the value of their education, their smarts, their ability to communicate, neutralized for a period of time. Um, that's got to be tough on a kid to see the people who have kind of taken care of him and the family neutralized to some degree. How did you respond to that? How did that affect your mindset? I think the, the real sort of value during that period was I realized that I, it's time to grow up. Like I really wasn't offered a choice. You know, can, can I sort of, you know, I, I grew up in a very nice, very closely knit nuclear family. We lived with my grandparents, sort of three generations under one roof. Everybody, like we were never at all wealthy or even well-to-do, but everybody had excellent education. We had great books in the house. So it was kind of a little bit of a, uh, oasis of knowledge under the generally roof of paternal maternal love. When we moved to the US, uh, my grandfather had just passed away in Kiev. My grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. My parents were both really not great speakers of English. My dad knew that he wasn't going to find a job because his talents and knowledge was really Russian literature, which is not nearly as useful in America. And my mom was expected to go provide for the family, and I was expected to go win scholarships because if I wanted to go to a good school, no one's going to pay for it. <laughs> And, uh, and say with my younger brother. And so as this sort of happened, no, no one sat me down and said, by the way, kid, you're now on your own. But it was sort of like, here's a rub. Yeah, you could read between the lines. Yeah. And uh, I was in this super nice, education was free into the old uh, Soviet system. So I was never really questioning why, you know, how can we afford to go to this excellent tracked high school that I was in. Sort of like, no, no, you're going to go to the high school that's nearest to our house because they're free. And I went to an inner city high school in Chicago, and uh, that was sort of like, oh, that's how one makes do for themselves. And uh, it was actually very good. I grew up kind of overnight. Um, I realized that most kids in my high school, most kids around me in general, had no real plan. Mm. And I sort of decided it was very important to start making lots of plans. and execute on them. Does it uh, matter if those plans are what you actually end up doing or did you just need to have plans? I'm not even sure that it's all that important to have plans. It was very important for me to feel that I'm taking charge. Mm. And this notion of I am going to go control where things go on my own as opposed to rely on someone else's input was very formative. Uh, the good news is that my family was extremely supportive. They essentially never asked twice what I was going to do once they sort of realized it. Their only sort of bar was, hey, get into a good 
education. You know, good graduate or undergraduate program is essential. Everything else, we'll figure this out. There's actually one thing that's really nice about um, growing up in a Jewish tradition. There's a many generations of belief that education is the ticket for everything. And so my constant drumbeat for my family was always get a good education. Everything else is, is going to come after. That helps enormously. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you hear so many things about traditions where people are told, oh, well, you got to stay home and help on the farm. And that's more important than going and getting an education. That's what and it, there's a there's a cultural there are cultural consequences uh, to, to what we value, and, and that can be hard to shift. Yep. Um, right now, among your contemporaries in Silicon Valley, I feel like there's a, a questioning of the core value of technology to society in a way that we haven't had recently. Traditionally, Silicon Valley, I think, is used to thinking of itself as being intrinsically good. Mm -hmm. um, we, meritocracy, we value invention and things that benefit mankind. Come here, start your own thing. Between uh, what's happening with Facebook and questions about how its platform might have been used, was used, to manipulate uh, people's positions ahead of uh, elections, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Looking at uh, Amazon and the way it's chosen new locations for, uh, for branch offices and did cities give too much? Is Amazon committed enough to, to improving the lives uh, of the citizens around them? I wonder if you've reflected on what should successful entrepreneurs, good companies think about, commit to when it comes to changing and influencing the communities around them? So I think there's a lot there, so I'll try to <laughs> unpack it and go as far as I can recall. But um, so I, I think it's a myth, that, and it's a myth that's fun to retell to ourselves that technology is inherently a force for good. I mean, nuclear bomb is a technology. Right. There's not really a whole lot of good other than maybe mutually assured destruction uh, during the Cold War that came out of that. So I, I'm not at all a believer that if you're in Silicon Valley doing something, anything that gives you a free pass, quite, quite the opposite. I think some companies benefited society as a result of their existence so much, just inherently so, that even with the cost that, by the way, come with anything, there's, there's no such thing as all good and no bad. There's, there's always something. Right. And, you know, food we eat comes in packaging that pollutes. And um, I think a lot of companies in Silicon Valley have slowly forgotten that part. We have to look in the mirror and sort of ask the question, are we in fact leaving up, living up to our values, to our promises made, to sort of what we want to be? And so, At a firm, it's actually been relatively easy because we founded the entire company around this notion of we want to shine a light, bring transparency, be the honest actor, provide an alternative to the opaque, money-grubbing, frankly, world of these banks that create products that are meant to help you consume without internal personal accountability. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been, I would say, relatively stay the course for us as these wake-up calls keep happening. So uh, you know, we have our walls covered in our core values as a reminder that we must live by 
for the mission, by the mission, by the rules that we've created for ourselves. And we take it very seriously. Um, an all-hands meeting doesn't go by that somebody doesn't ask a hard question, which as a, as a CEO, as, as a management team, I welcome because we want to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable, as accountable as we possibly can be. What kinds of hard questions do you get? All sorts of really interesting stuff. <laughs> um, one of the things, so a topic that comes back every year, every, every quarter, is this notion. So we lend money, we always lend money at the point of sale. So when you're buying item X, a firm steps in and says, hey, if you want to use something that's an alternative to your credit card that will not cost you, you know, exponentially accruing interest, here's our product. The moral question, or one moral, moralistic question you get asked is, well, should you even be buying this product? Should anybody be buying this product? If you're borrowing money for this product, should you be buying it at all? And it's a complicated topic because you, in sort of the obvious answer is like, well, look, it's personal choice, it's money. You want to spend your money over here, my job is to enable it. Maybe, but then you can sort of start asking, you know, create examples where, you know, should we financing things that are objectionable? objectionable to us, objectionable to some people. And so one of the things that I had to do very early on is create a sort of a logical and moral framework to answer that question and ideally answer it scalably enough where as we bring on new merchant partners, we don't have to relitigate the topic. Right. And so the, the thing that I've come up with years ago now that really served us well, our job is to be non-judgmental but prescriptive. And so but prescriptive. Yes. What that means is if you're buying something and any one of the humans in our team has a point of view that, oh gosh, that, that's just a frivolous purchase, that is not right. We should not be judging you for the things you desire. Right. Now, if you can't afford it and we see in the information that we take from you or get from you as we make the underwriting decision, that you cannot afford this loan, you cannot afford this transaction, it doesn't matter how morally elevated that purchase is, it is our responsibility to tell you, do not borrow money. This is a bad idea, you're gonna end up in debt, we're gonna eventually have to tell the credit bureaus that you have gone to default, we believe that you're not capable of servicing this loan, please don't borrow money. We won't lend to you, but we recommend you don't go anywhere else. And. People don't love hearing that, our customers, or our would-be customers don't love hearing that because we're literally telling them, please don't buy that thing. It's not for you. How do you tell them? When you're asking for credit, sometimes, not, not very often, people generally are pretty good at self-governance, but every once in a while, we have to decline people. And as the declination notice comes out, we try to be you know, as, as blunt as our regulatory frameworks allow us to be, but we will basically say, look, this is something that we cannot justify lending to you. And uh, it's it serves us very well. We're so unlike a credit card company. Credit card company basically says here's a line. Set credit so limit and until no. you hit that. Yep. And even after you and, hit it. And it expands. Yeah. 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 So it, it I think it's so a So you're much more like more a bartender in this situation saying, Max, you've had too many. Yeah, there's there's a little <laughs> bit of that. But I think the bartender never tells you what to drink or what not to drink. <laughs> right. They just tell you, look, you it's about time. Yeah. Um, but we, we we really take our responsibility towards morality of our business very, very seriously. And that also what makes us so attractive to our employees. So people that come to join us are the kids, and our employee base is very young, and I'm now not, not so young, so I, I can <laughs> almost without uh, exception call them some you know, young people. But uh, when we get uh, 
interns, fresh graduates, people right off their first job. They're coming to us because they love finance. They think finance is the engine of society. They love commerce. They, they really want to work in something that in financial services, but they're grossed out by how these financial products out there are designed to rip people off. So they're looking for an alternative and what, what they see at a firm, they understand that what they see is what they get. This really is a moral company. We are trying to build something that is better for people. Mm. And um, it does sound a little bit too, be, too good to be true, <laughs> um, but uh, we take great pains to stick to our, uh, our, our plan that we've had since day one. And so uh, we're, we're very successful attracting really smart, really young, idealistic people that want to work on, on financial services. So that, that's, been, uh, that's been great for us. I think Silicon Valley is back to sort of the original question is going through a little bit of a reckoning where some companies like Affirm are saying, hey, we've always had a true north. It's a good time for us to be employers because people come to those companies more. They want to work for companies with a true north. Mm -hmm. The ones that thought they did but lost it or maybe have not been able to communicate it all the way down as, as well as they should or the ones that never had it are scrambling to recreate that sense of true mission and the ability to frankly say no to certain things even if those things are very profitable and one easy way i think for companies to sort of get there fast is to just exercise extreme transparency like one of the things that we've done from day one at a firm every time we have a board meeting either the day before or the day after we take the entire company since we had five people to now 500 the entire company gets to see exactly what we're telling our directors. Hmm. Our board gets a full accounting of what I think is going on. Exactly what you're telling the directors. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to keep that up? Hope Can you so. imagine if all of Facebook was Ooh. seeing exactly what Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg I, I'm, I'm were sure showing the directors? At some point, we're going to have to deal with the fact that some people are, through regulatory requirements, are not allowed to see certain things. Right. But I think. You just want to err on the side of being as transparent as possible. Certainly the color commentary that I delivered to the board saying, here's what's going well, here's what's not going well, we are getting beaten up here and we're doing well there. I think the company really appreciates that and that is what enables people to ask tough questions. They say, well, we're doing well here, have we considered the moral implications? And I think that's exactly the dialogue you want and you want me, an executive team, sort of, wow, that's a tough question versus having to dig out from a pile of bad press. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's the way we've done it and feel very good about that. But I think many, many companies in Silicon Valley are trying to figure out how to uh, reinvent that sense of transparency. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. And that's also the best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on that series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of this very conversation. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.